0: Good afternoon, I uh, have the, uh, the wonderful time slot of uh, speaking just after lunch, which is normally when everybody just starts slipping into a coma. I was going to make a joke uh, that the Lord had spoken to me about one individual in the room uh, that if they didn't stay alert, their eternal destiny would hang in the balance, um, but I didn't think that would be right that I would just tell you a story about how I thought about doing it. <laughs> um, I have the uh, incredible privilege of uh, being able to fellowship and just to, uh, just to be in a relationship with a bunch of these guys. And um, it's, it's just been an amazing uh, blessing. And so for those of you that are watching uh, through the website, uh, I just want to uh, agree um and just say you know go to go to the dtn uh, resources section and um and and just look up a lot of this stuff it's some of from my perspective some of the best teaching that i've ever heard um and not just you know because it moves me or this sort of thing, but because theology matters and um and because i believe it's biblical and and thus it's life changing and it's uh Going to cause your life to if you submit to it to come into alignment with his purposes for you and um, of course we need that more now than ever so uh, in the process of um, uh, sitting down a few months back and, and discussing the different subjects that we would each uh, talk about the uh, the lot fell to me to discuss the issue of martyrdom um, and so, as they were joking a bit the the title for the message today is "Some Thoughts on Martyrdom." Um, maybe slightly underwhelming. Uh, the point here is simply that, as I was pondering and just weighing this message, how do I talk about something that I uh, have no experience in? Um, it's really just by virtue. Uh, this is not something that you can, you know, practice what you preach. Um, you know, you could you could argue that. Uh, you know, simply embracing the cross every day is living a life of martyrdom or living as a bold witness uh, is living a life of martyrdom. And ultimately, that's true. But in the ultimate sense, this is a message that nobody can really preach on that has uh, actually experienced it. Now, some people, by the way, practice what they preach. Other people preach what they practice, uh, which is to say, oh, if you were talking about fasting, you know it's not something that you're just going to start preaching on. Uh, if you really haven't done much of it. And so some people are going to spend a significant season in some particular discipline or practice, and then they will then, after having experienced it, begin uh, preaching on those things. And I always appreciate uh, those type of preachers. Um, But this is simply one of those subjects that we have to talk about. We have to begin discussing the subject of martyrdom simply because it is thoroughly biblical this was an issue that was central to the uh, apostolic faith, to the faith that was proclaimed, of course, obviously, uh, by Jesus and the apostles, but was central uh, to the belief system and the practice of the early church. And yet it's really an issue that, by and large, while it still exists, the modern church has pretty much lost a theology of martyrdom. And, and it's, it's certainly not something that you're going to hear discussed frequently. And if you do, it's often in a fairly romanticized Nature. And so, uh, again, just wanted to keep it simple. Ultimately, I don't have the ability to come to you with any profound experiences or deep revelation uh, other than just to offer uh, some thoughts on martyrdom. So, uh, part one, or Roman numeral one, uh, and you have all the notes here. Um, uh, I may deviate a bit from the notes. But, uh, Roman numeral 1, the need for a scripturally defined theology of engagement. And the reason that I wanted to uh, begin with this is because I don't simply want to talk about martyrdom. I want to talk about it in such a way that it will connect with uh, the church today. And so, I think that uh, in order to do that, we need to talk a bit about a theology of engagement and what that means. So, uh, letter A... Uh, In our sinful fallen human state, all humans, it's just natural, our tendency, our propensity is to react or overreact. And so while that's common to all people, it's also just as common within the church. And I've really, I've uh, observed this over the years. You could look at any number of, throughout church history, of examples of how the church will, uh, or a group within the church will overreact to a particular issue that they Uh, receive a revelation or insight into, and then essentially take something in a complete opposite extreme. Uh, You can look at the history of the division between the church and the synagogue, between the Jewish community and the Christian community. You can see how one group will overreact and essentially develop a theology, not because they necessarily believe this issue to be true, because it's the opposite of what these guys believe. And so this is it's kind of a slippery issue, but it's something that we always need to be uh, uh, diligent in watching for and paying attention and making sure that we're not falling into that trap of taking something uh, too far. Now, uh, letter B, despite our tendency, and particularly within the charismatic movement, now I hope I'm not being too cynical here when I say this, uh, but the propensity oftentimes within the charismatic movement, the, you know we're trying to be led by the Spirit, is to simply roll, to simply flow with whatever trend happens to roll through the church. And sometimes a trend can be inspired by the Holy Spirit, but other times it can simply be a trend. And we need to realize that there are trends all around us. There's trends in fashion, there's trends in food, there's trends in just anything you can imagine. Trends are not... Frequently something that just happened that are just birth trends are usually the result of a very deliberate program And a group of people that determine we're going to make this issue a trend and we don't we're very rarely aware of this You know I I use this as the uh, probably the easiest target um, Skinny pants skinny jeans uh, Skinny jeans are not popular because they're, uh, you know, better looking. They, they are popular now because a group in New York got together at some particular point and said, next year, we're going to begin introducing this, and within a few years, this becomes the issue, and through advertising and so on and so forth. And so we can all go, yeah, okay, I, I guess I, I'm aware of that. Now, of course, I always pick on skinny pants. Um, I think anybody over 40 is going to pick on skinny pants. Um it's just funny. It's like, do you realize that from my perspective? Of course, I grew up in the '80s. You look like you're dressing like a woman. No, but uh, I mean, you know, there's just that reality. But then here's here's the qualifier: is that the main reason I actually pick on them is because I can't fit in them. So that's that's why I, I say that. Um, but so whether it's fashion, you name it, trends within the church, different ideas, these things are deliberate. There are you know, individuals and, and various groups, that, you, whatever arena we're talking about, determine these things. Now, sometimes things do just sprout out, grassroots movements and so forth. But we need to be very careful of just assuming something is a move of the Spirit. Things begin places and they move places. And oftentimes, these, these things are literally just something birthed by man. It's not always the Holy Spirit. Now, a, uh, a primary, a very easy example that I want to highlight... Is uh, throughout the 80s, throughout the 70s, 80s, and 90s, and it still really influences large segments of the church, is the influence of pre-tribulational dispensational premillennialism. And now, for those that are not uh, really theologically oriented, this is left behind theology. Okay, and, and I'll just point this out. I was thinking about this on the on the flight. I didn't get a chance to really. I was hoping to work through my sermon on the flight, and I got in a conversation. And so I did have five minutes to think about this. But the Left Behind series, uh, roughly 50 million uh, copies in the series have been sold. So now this is uh, a a series of fictional novels which are following the life uh, of this guy Buck, who is a tribulational saint. So according to these um, novels, the church has been raptured, and then Buck is living the adventures of a tribulational saint. And probably a large segment of those that read the books uh, adhere to the idea that the church is going to be raptured. So they are pre-tribulationalists. They believe we will be raptured prior to the tribulation. And so here you have, and I'm just going to guess, let's say 30 million that have read the books actually ascribe to the theology. 30 million pre-tribulationists eagerly Uh, waiting for the next novel so that they can live vicariously through the life of a tribulational saint. Does anybody see the irony of that? So, Left Behind Theology, uh, I call it PDP, Left Behind Theology, it dominated large segments of the church. In fact, it it dominated a large uh, segment of evangelicalism. uh, And it's a deeply pessimistic worldview which is to say, by and large, they simply believe that the world is going to get worse and worse and worse until eventually it gets so bad, so corrupt, that the Lord just raptures the church out of here. And then it gets even worse. And then He destroys it and recreates it. And that's essentially the the perspective of... uh, And then He he comes back to rule over this sort of recreated earth of um, uh, left-behind theology. Now, because it has such a deeply pessimistic, negative perspective on creation and on the world, uh, there's often been uh, what critics will refer to this eschatology as an eschatology of abandonment. And so coming out of this mindset, you've got this, this phrase which says, why polish the brass on a sinking ship? In other words, if this whole thing's just sort of going to hell in a handbasket, why are we going to waste our time trying to, trying to keep it afloat? You know, we just sort of set back and just let it do what it's going to do, and the church is very much disengaged. Okay, So it, it has, in many ways, promoted uh, a culture of abandonment. So now what's happened, in my opinion, is that much of the, the the younger segment of the church today has sort of grown up under that, or they've experienced that, and they've looked at it and they've said, you know, that's, something about that is wrong. They might not even necessarily be able to define it, but they're like the church is not supposed to be disengaged. We're supposed to be culturally engaged. And I would say that that is a a genuine, biblically-rooted desire and hope, okay? But what happens is we overreact, okay? So large segments of the church today, it's incredibly popular, and I would argue that we've overreacted into where essentially, and and again, this is going to be cross-current various movements, it's now essentially understood within certain segments of the church that cultural engagement for the sake of cultural engagement, doing good deeds, uh, social justice, these sort of things, just unto themselves, this is the primary mandate of the church. That the, the chief end of the church is really to be focused on things like fair and equal housing, or universal health care. And all these different issues that are very political issues. And, you know, of course you could talk about uh, more justice-oriented issues like human trafficking or abortion. And these are all very uh, issues that are near and dear to the heart of God. But what happens is when we cross the line from saying that we are called to engage culture as part of our pointing to the day of the Lord and pointing to the age to come... Versus believing that they are ends unto themselves, then we've simply become humanists with a very thin veneer of Christianity over what we're doing. Uh, I have a, a friend uh, in New Jersey that uh, contacted me several months back, and he said, You know, last time we were talking and we had talked about human trafficking, and he was really moved, and he said, You know, there's this group here that's, that's engaged in helping rescue women from human trafficking. And he said, you know, I really wanted to get involved, um, but as I was going through all their material, they were adamant that we don't preach Christianity to anybody. We just are working to get women out of human trafficking. Now, much of the church, um, you know, and I'm, 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 str- I'm trying not to name names. I don't want to say this guy or that pastor, but very, very popular, well-received teachers will take this approach and they say it doesn't matter if we're it's not we're not trying to do it just because we have an agenda we want them to become like us it's a good thing to do and therefore we should just do it and that seems to make sense on the surface but the bottom line is you know using this as an example if you're rescuing some woman from slavery you're you're helping her get out of egypt and you've just now brought her out of egypt into the desert but you haven't led her into the promised land. You haven't proclaimed Christ. You haven't given her the tools necessary to truly find freedom. You haven't done her any good. I shouldn't say that. Yes, you've done her some good, but in the end, she still is in bondage. She's still en- enslaved to these things that are going to fall around for the rest of her life. And it's just, it's Christian humanism. It's not unto the gospel. So, what I mean by everything is oriented toward the age to come we're going to talk about this quite a bit more, is that everything that we do as believers needs to be unto the Gospel. So we, the good news is the Gospel of the Kingdom. It's the good news of the Kingdom. There's a Kingdom coming. So now in this age, we as the church, we're called to rescue, let's say you know we, we get involved in ministry to human trafficking. We rescue uh, someone from, from sexual slavery. And then we lead them to Christ. That is a sign and a deposit and we're pointing to the age to come when all those in Christ, every last one, is delivered. So the oppressed are set free in the age to come. But it's not just an end unto itself. Everything that we're doing in word or deed has to be unto the Gospel. Unto the day when Messiah is going to break this entire system of human trafficking and bring it completely to an end. Okay, we're going to talk some more about this. Now, so uh, in the midst of all this popular, you know, social, the social justice movement within the church, I'm convinced that if we want to reach the, the younger segment of the church today, we need to help them to understand how this, this worldview that the kingdom is yet to come, that ultimately premillennialism, if you want to use that term, that we are now living prior to the millennium, that Christ will return and establish his millennial kingdom. That if we're to bring that back uh, into the church, that it will become uh, widely received again, we have to come through the gate of cultural engagement. Because, uh, again, the church is, so much of the youth church today is just focused on that issue. And if we don't realize that how central that is, we're going to miss it. And so, this is really a word to the teachers and to the pastors and those that. Uh, that have a voice that we'll recognize that we have to begin with that issue of cultural engagement and bring them back to a a balanced perspective on this issue. So I've laid out a chart here, by the way, just uh, so you can sort of understand the difference. Dispensationalism, left behind theology. It's deeply uh, abandoned, abandons culture to its own devices. Popular faith, deeply engaged in culture. Dispensationalism emphasizes proclamation, but it often uh, is less focused on the issues of justice. Uh, popular faith today deeply emphasizes justice ministry. Again, a good thing, but they overemphasize it to where it is the chief end, the ultimate goal of the church unto itself, uh, but they often neglect preaching the gospel, and particularly repentance. You know, to them, the gospel might be, well, Jesus died on the cross for your sins. He loves you. Jesus loves you. you know, I preach the gospel, um, leaving out that, uh, that issue of Repentance. Dispensationalism, again, deeply pessimistic. Popular faith today is often, as I said, very humanistic, but it's often very optimistic, triumphalistic, believing that it is our mandate to uh, Christianize the earth and to uh, dance upon injustice and all of these sort of things. That Through spiritual warfare, our primary mandate is to break down the strongholds uh, of injustice, again, as the chief end of, of uh, the believing community dispensationalism thoroughly apocalyptic which is to say it fully views all of the blessings and the promises and the rewards and the benefits of the cross to be in the age to come popular faith today is deeply opposed to that view often believing that all of those blessings benefits uh and so forth are now that we are to receive those and and benefit from those now in this in this day your best life now uh pulling in we were talking about a particular preacher and I was uh, in a more cynical uh, state one day, I said, you know, if I really wanted just to be uh, incredibly successful and, uh, and just have a great uh, best-selling book, I would write a book called, You Can Have Your Cake and Eat It Too, and, uh, and the church would eat it up. Um, and then literally I got one day after making that joke, I got online on YouTube and I was watching this preacher and he literally said it. He goes, what I'm trying to tell you is that through the cross, you can have your cake and eat it too. And I was just like, you're kidding me. Like, he said it. Like, he actually said it. And yet, what does Paul say? He says, listen, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then we of all people are to be pitied. In this life, we are to be of all people to be pitied. Why? Because if if our hope is not real, then ultimately, if we're living according to the pattern that Paul laid down, then our life is actually going to be kind of lousy. I mean, really, it's going to be, we're sacrificing, we're giving up, we're laying things down, we're not living for ourselves, we're not eating our cake, and, uh, we're not eating our cake, what is it? You can have, we're not having our cake and eating it too. It's just, I mean, it's literally the anti-gospel. I mean, it really is the anti-gospel. So, uh, I threw out this, uh, this verse. It's probably slightly out of context. Jeremiah 15, verse 19. But I believe it is a, a good principle, which is that the Lord values us looking at what I would say is, is corrupt, corrupted Christian culture, finding those gems within that, and calling those things forth. Okay. Therefore, thus said the Lord, if you return, then I will restore you. Before me you will stand, and if you extract the precious from the worthless, you will become my spokesman. They for their part may turn to you, okay, but you must not turn to them. That's an important key. In other words, let them come to us, but we're not trying to come to them. There's a big difference. And he goes on, though they will fight you with all their, I'm paraphrasing, all their wicked power, they won't prevail against you. You'll be a brass tower. Uh, We should seize upon the popular desire to engage with culture, but help redirect the... And I feel funny, by the way, just keep saying the the young people. Um, It seemed like I was young recently, just recently. All of a sudden, all this hair started growing out of my ears that I have to maintain constantly. I have to be diligent to maintain. It'll happen overnight, guys. (coughs) It's essential that as we ourselves come to understand the overarching emphasis throughout the Scriptures on the age to come, throughout the prophets, throughout the entire Bible, throughout the New Testament, the apostles, Jesus, all of creation, everybody throughout this entire book is pointing to the age to come. They're groaning for the age to come. They're talking about the age to come. They're dreaming of the age to come. When we understand the overarching emphasis of the scriptures on the age to come, and we sort of get out of this popular, uh, uh, as some of the brothers were saying, this this, uh, platonic worldview that the kingdom is now, that it's essential that we also understand the proper place of cultural engagement within that theological framework. So we're going to talk about some of those things as we move on. So, uh, Roman numeral number two, a theology of engagement, a theology of martyrdom. Uh, really all I'm doing here is reiterating much of what has already been discussed uh, the past few days and just simply uh, trying to pull in this issue of martyrdom. It really comes down to, once again, how we view the kingdom. Is the kingdom now or is the kingdom yet to come? So that is uh, the kingdom now versus the kingdom to come. That's the theology. The application of those two perspectives is are we triumphalistic, dominionistic conquerors or are we witness martyrs? Okay, so I've again put out a, a laid out a little chart there, very simple, uh, from the kingdom now perspective. As I said, we're we're not pilgrims. I uh, I had a sort of a debate uh, on the radio with a very popular uh, preterist, uh, an individual that believes that all biblical prophecy was fulfilled in 70 A.D. And, uh, and I asked him, I said, how in your theological framework can you maintain a pilgrim uh, a- alien stranger identity? And he got real angry and said, oh, this, oh this, this pilgrim identity, all this stuff, like you're just not supposed to be engaged. It's just ridiculous. And I was like, wow, you literally just denied a, the entire orientation of the entire early church. Um, you know, and he, but see, to him, to say that we are pilgrims means that we're thoroughly disengaged. So you see how they do that. You say, if we're talking about a pilgrim identity, they go, you're a dispensationalist. No, we don't need to be engaged in complete cultural abandonment. If we are pilgrims here, then we come from the perspective, and uh, I walked through that, then we come from the perspective that we are to be salt and light. We are to be a faithful presence while being here. Okay, but again, we are doing so in the midst of a culture of a world which is inherently wicked, inherently adversarial. Okay, This is not our home. We are passing through. Yes, we're engaged in culture. We're engaged in justice. We are not disengaged. Yes, we vote. All of these things. But we do it as influence. Okay, Salt and light. We are... A positive influence in the midst of a culture which is inherently wicked, and it 's essential that we understand the biblical uh, understanding of this age of this world it 's not simply a culture that just needs to be tweaked a little bit and so as I was engaged in um, in debate with this this uh, individual, uh, you know I said I mean the bottom line is if you 're coming from your perspective the, that the kingdom is now, then by necessity, you believe that it's your job to essentially Christianize the world now, to take over the world now, and which ultimately, inevitably, always will lead to engaging in trying to take over law, government, and military. It always, by logical extension, ends up there. And why is the church so focused the past several years on, on uh, voting? I mean, it has been really the big issue. Well, one, it's the spirit of the age that, you know, the the cultural wars all revolve around this, but ultimately because large segments of the church are deeply uh, overwhelmed with a kingdom now mentality, and thus the primary way that we affect the world is by electing righteous leaders and by passing righteous laws. Now, when we do that, then we enforce righteousness externally. And how well does that work? The gospel is that we proclaim the gospel to one individual at a time, they receive the Holy Spirit, and then they're changed internally. If you want to change the greater Minnesota area, then raise up a church of bold evangelists that will disciple and transform thousands of individuals. That will change the atmosphere. Or you can sit in here and, and, and do spiritual warfare. Now again, I believe in intercession, don't get me wrong, but it's amazing how we can focus entirely on trying to change the, the, uh, the atmosphere and pray that a bunch of pagans will vote righteously and suddenly that's going to change the atmosphere throughout uh, Minneapolis. Do you see what I'm saying? Get engaged in evangelism. That's the method. The early church turned the world upside down by evangelism. They didn't do it primarily by political uh, activism. <clears throat> So the pilgrim identity, when we say pilgrim identity, we're referring to the world. It's our perspective on uh, the world around us. It is fundamentally, irretrievably wicked. We need to understand that. And if we are living according to the pattern that Jesus and Paul laid out for us, then we will have enemies. It's that simple. People will hate you. If people don't hate you, and I, I mean this, if you don't have people that are really mad at you, you're probably not doing something that you should be doing you're probably not saying things that you should say and and oftentimes you know the perspective of somebody in the church is like we're just trying to show them how likable we are or how cool we can be look we can be cool just like you you know Uh, just like the world look we can be edgy and this and that and you know it's like we're trying to convince them that we're not quite as starchy as they try to you know we're not the, the the stereotype that you think we are And we're trying to make friends with the world. That's not the the approach that we're to take. It's not about making friends or proving ourselves to the world. If we speak the truth in love, there's a lot of people that will hate us. You know, you just, whatever, you name the issue. You know, homosexuality. You say you're killing yourself. You're destroying your body. You're destroying your soul. I love you, but it's wicked. And you shouldn't be doing that to yourself or anybody else. They will hate you. And all you're doing is just saying, Look, man, I love you, but I, it, 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 I had friends growing up, severe drug addicts. You get in their face, you know, you're killing yourself. You are killing yourself. And sometimes in a moment of drunkenness, they would admit, you know, they would go, Yeah, this guy really cares about me. Uh, one of my best friends in my whole life, uh, probably the closest thing that I've ever had to a brother, um, he was incredible. You know, drug addict, and, uh, and probably for the last year of his life, I mean, we hardly ever talked. We hardly ever saw each other. He avoided me like the plague, and uh, I mean, he was kind of the life of the party. So he always wanted to be around him, uh, Mike. And um, but, you know, eventually, what we all knew would happen happened, and he died. And uh, I really, I thought that he hated me because I was one of the few people that was always getting on his case and just saying like you know you got to stop you got to slow down you're going to kill yourself you're going to kill other people and uh and shortly after he died I was visiting with his dad and uh you know his dad says you know just like a week ago Mike was visiting and uh it was it was strange he said to me he goes you know the only one of all my friends in the world that actually cares about me is uh is Joel and uh, he said he he actually said he's the only one of my friends that actually loves me and I was like you're kidding me Mike said that I was like Mike hates me. Like, Mike, Mike avoids me like the plague. But he knew deep down inside that I loved him because I was getting on his case. If you love somebody and they're destroying themselves, speak up. And the bottom line is, it will come across that a lot of people hate you. And um, sometimes I, I Google my name, and, uh, and, and, you know, a lot of people hate me just because I'm an idiot. I admit that. Um, but. There's also, sometimes I go, I must be doing something right, because a lot of people just hate me, and, um, and sometimes it's fun to pull out some of the, the most endearing terms, the names. Thank you, sir. Um, I, I think I put it on my website. I have all these, you know, like endorsements, and then I have one that says, Joel Richardson is a bucket of bile in a sea of hate merchants, and uh, so we have, to, we have to have fun with it. <clears throat> the present system the present world will only be corrected through destruction judgment and fire at the day of the lord okay this is we need to get this down second peter 3 verse 7 through 10 by his word the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men it's ultimately about the destruction of the ungodly right the entire system The day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the present heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat. The earth and its works will be burned up. Now, I don't believe that's literal. I don't believe that the earth, when Jesus comes back, is literally going to be burnt with fire. And the reason I don't believe that is because throughout the prophets, it talks about us rebuilding the earth, rebuilding the ruins, rebuilding the cities that have been laid waste. Okay? So ultimately, the key to understanding this particular text is when it says it's the day of judgment of ungodly men. And then it uses the common biblical symbols of the heavens and the earth referring to the governments and, and again, the system of men that will be judged by fire. It will be ultimately completely destroyed by the Lord and then the righteous will inherit the earth, the meek will inherit the earth. But if we think that the present system needs just, we just need to be a little friendlier, a little bit nicer, the gospel of niceness just needs tweaking, or it just needs um, you know a better Christian form of government, then we've completely misunderstood the nature of the world that we live in. This is why we need to maintain a pilgrim uh, identity. So once we understand that this age is utterly wicked, that this world is all. Ul- Utterly wicked, as I said, irretrievably uh, wicked. Then ultimately, cultural engagement by necessity in its ultimate form must involve martyrdom. If you are truly engaged in a wicked culture, you will be hated, and if you follow that to its logical end, ultimately you will be martyred. So as we are reaching out to that segment of the church that believes in cultural engagement, we need to convey that fact that if you really want to engage with culture, that means that if you're doing it right, they're going to kill you. They're going to hate you, and they're going to kill you. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? This is, this is where it has to go. If we're walking this thing out properly, that's where it will end. We as the church need to come back to the kingdom of God orientation, the emphasis, the longing... Of the entire Bible, as I said. All of creation is groaning for that day. I was with a uh, a minister recently and uh, just naturally end up talking about some of these things. And this individual looked at me and they said, I don't want Jesus to come back. I want souls to be saved. I want billions of souls to be saved. I want to hold the day of the Lord off as long as possible. And I said, that sounds nice. I want people to be saved as well. But if you say that you don't want the age to come, you don't want His kingdom to be established, then you have fundamentally lost touch with the groan that all of creation is experiencing. You've lost that cry of the early church that says, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. You've lost it. And again, the entire New Testament was written by persecuted individuals. Two persecuted individuals. Four persecuted individuals. And so we live here in the United States, and we're like, I don't want the day of the Lord to come. What about my stuff? What's going to happen to all my stuff? You know? And we're like, hold that thing off. You know? And then we go like, Lord, I just pray that you would not return until, a- you know, if you're single, you go not until after I get married. And, uh, and then if you'd get married, then you say, just until after my kids get married. You know, I just want to see them get married. And then you can return, you know. And it's literally like, we're like, we're pretty much living good right now. Please, you know, I don't want a tribulation. You know, let's just kind of keep things the way they are. If, we, if that's our perspective, then we are completely out of touch of the orientation of the New Testament, completely out of touch. The early church was thoroughly focused. Their eyes were fixed on the day of the Lord. And I'll, I'll, I'll preach a little New Ageism here. We need to, um, as the church, we need to get in touch and identify with the trees and the grass and the dirt and all of these things. And if we do, then we'll identify with those things as they cry out and groan for the day of the Lord. You understand what I'm saying? All of creation is groaning for the day of the Lord because things are completely, fundamentally wicked, unnatural. This is not the way it's supposed to be. So we need to get in touch with the birds and the donkeys. All of creation is groaning for that day. It's the gospel of the kingdom, it's the good news of the kingdom. It's not Jesus died on the cross for your sins so you can live your best life now. It's not. It's the anti-gospel. Hebrews 11, verse 11 through 16. This particular little segment needs to become one of the central uh, passages for the church in in the last days and these days. And the greater passage that surrounds it. Having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things, those that say that they're strangers, they make it clear that they are seeking, that they are looking, that they are yearning, they are groaning for a country of their own, a different one other than the one that we're living in now, a different system. If indeed they've been thinking of the country from which they went out, they would have had op- an opportunity to return, but as it is they desire a better country. You know, we can tell the world, "Hey, I belong to a different country and it's way better than yours. <laughs> My country's better than yours." And, and we're not and, and we don't say that as Americans. Uh, it's a heavenly kingdom that will be established here and there. Therefore, therefore, because we are not of this world, God is not ashamed to be called their God because he has prepared a city, a kingdom for them. Our mandate, once again, everything that we say and do is pointing to that kingdom. Again, so we preach the gospel. We say, you know, repent. There's a day of judgment there's a day when the wicked will be uh, destroyed. When the uh, internet histories of everyone will be shouted from the rooftops. When the deeds of everyone will be laid bare. And the wickedness of mankind will be exposed and we will all be held to account. We will be judged for the deeds that we've done in the body, whether good or bad. And we will all be just completely exposed. And that day is coming. Repent, therefore. Repent. Therefore, we have that message. What are we repenting? Because there is a day coming of judgment and every one of us is going to stand before the Lord on that day with no excuse. Right? But not only do we point to that day with our words, again, all of the things that we do in terms of cultural engagement. We rescue the poor. We pray for the sick. Do all the sick get healed? No. I can tell you, I've been to thousands of prayer meetings and they don't. I'm sorry, but they don't. I see healings take place sometimes. Healings do take place in this age. But oftentimes, the majority go home and they're still sick. They're still hurting. And if we don't acknowledge that reality, then we're living in unreality. We're delusional. And we're trying to create this theology that says everyone gets healed. You're going to die. Someday you're going to die. And it's not you're probably not going to be 120. You know, it very well may be by disease or this or that or the other thing. And so we tell everybody, oh no, you're guaranteed to be healed now in this age. And then all the people that have lived with long-term diseases go home hurting. And we beat the snot out of the sick. We put the sick through hell. We do. Because somehow it's their fault. They didn't have enough faith. They have secret sin, unconfessed this. They haven't unresolved it. Whatever it might be, Ultimately, we sort of put it on them. But if we have a theology that says people are healed now as a sign of the day, the age to come, when everyone in the Lord gets healed, everyone is getting healed. Everyone. There's not going to be a single person in the kingdom which comes home from the prayer meeting with their headache 50% better. No one. Everyone's 100% healed. The lame will leap like a deer, the blind will, you know, the eyes will be everything. Full healing takes place. In this age, there will be healing. But these things are signs. We fight for the oppressed now because the age to come, the nature of that age, is when those in Him will be delivered. Those that have been just either through, again, sickness, this, that, you name it, they found themselves at the bottom of humanity's uh, line. they found themselves at the back of the line. They feel oppressed. They feel depressed. Those that wait patiently for Him in that day, the, the meek will be lifted up and they will be given charge over you know, cities and so forth. The humble, the meek. Those that have positioned themselves at the back of the line or that have just found themselves there naturally and yet have patiently endured. They will be lifted up. And then those that have positioned themselves at the top, that have clawed their way to the top out of ambition or whatever it might be, they will be cast down humbled, humiliated, and or cast into the lake of fire. That's the nature of the age to come. Everything that we say and do is geared toward that. It's all future-oriented. We're pointing to that kingdom, and thus our eyes, and we're directing everyone else's eyes toward that day. But as we go and we rescue women from slavery, or we're, we're ministering to the poor, we can't do it without the Gospel, without the good news. It's it's, just—it's again—it's humanism. We have to do it, and then say, "Listen, yes, you know, uh, you know, I've gotten you out of—you know—you've—you've come this far forward. We've helped you uh, you this—you know—out of the oppression that you experienced for so many years. But ultimately, in this life, it's only going to be so good, you know. But ultimately, in that age, you will be completely healed, completely delivered. I mean, none of us are healed. None of us are 100% healed. None of us are even close. We know that the whole creation groans. It suffers. The trees out there, they're literally suffering. Groaning for the day. The the pains of childbirth. In terms of cultural engagement, this is uh, G3 social justice, all these things. This means, yes, again, we, you know, I want to be clear, we do fight for all of these things. But, we have to do so in such a way that points to the ultimate victory that only belongs to Jesus. As soon as we come to this orientation which says, you know, again, I'll just throw out these terms, Kingdom Now, the Seven Mountain Mandate, Dominionist worldview, they're all one and the same. They present us as a believer who is part of a movement which is called to conquer for Christ, these various spheres of influence we are called to Christianize the earth. Ultimately, we're the ones that do it. We're the ones that conquer. If you have a perspective that Jesus is going to come back and conquer the earth, then all glory belongs to Him. It's actually incredibly dangerous to believe that we're part of some end time army that through prayer and justice is going to Christianize the world. It's nonsense. We're pilgrims here in a wicked world, and we're pointing to the one that's coming back to change everything. The Redeemer is coming, and all glory belongs to him. And we're just doing little acts. We're just pointing to the one that's coming. And the bottom line is if you believe that your primary mandate in this age is to Christianize the world, then you've just hopped on what I call the Kingdom Now hamster wheel. What are you doing? I'm going to end poverty now. <laughs> how's it going for you? Oh, almost there, shut up! Just, uh, and the you get on that for a while. You get on the hamster wheel for a while until you just collapse of exhaustion. You roll off, you're burnt out. Everyone's like, what happened? How's it going? How's, how's the, the whole process of ending poverty in this generation working out for you? <laughs> it's not so good yet, but if we just have another party. We just have another. I'm just going to get myself psyched up. Here we go. <laughs> All right, Lord, I'm ready. Let's get back on. You can do that for a few years. It gets tired quick. The strongest among us will, will eventually burn out. You know, and, and again, if you're coming from the perspective of a, uh, a post-millennialist, a dominionist that believes it's the primary mandate of the church. Dude, I, always, I do that stupid stunt, and then I'm like, I wish I could take my jacket off now. But I get the, I get the mic in it. Um, but, uh, you know, they come from this spread. You say, well, you know, you'll say to these guys, well, how's it working out for you? I mean, you know, we're supposedly supposed to move from persecution to triumph. We're going to take over the world. How's it? And they're like, well, you know, you got to understand, these things are ebbs and flows. You know, you have... You have some victories, it gets better and it gets worse. And you're like, how's it going right now? Like, well, Christianity's shrinking throughout the West. Islam's spreading. Yeah, the entire Western world's collapsing economically. The United States is on to... Cl- this is just a temporary little setback. you know. And it's just like this perpetual cycle. And, and I'm just telling you, anybody that's on that eventually is going to be burnt out. They're just going to be burnt out. We need a theology. That allows for the reality of this life, which is filled with disappointments and failures. Amen. I mean, is that, you know? And so I, I threw this down here. I, this is probably a little cynical on my part. I've got two quotes <clears throat> just after K. Don't accept whatever comes your way in life, you were born to win. <laughs> I'm sorry. You were born for greatness. You were created to be a champion in life. And again, I, I know Joel Osteen is an easy target. He's kind of low-hanging fruit. And, and my purpose is not to... I'm not bashing him. I'm bashing a mentality. I mean, the reality, again, for clarity, this is the pastor of the largest, perhaps the most successful church in the entire United States. So he, he, probably low-hanging fruit is probably not the best term. And then over here... You've got Horatio Spafford. Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. So which one of these two slogans do you identify better with? How many champions here? How many, how many were created for greatness, to win, win, win? You know, and go, yeah, that's pretty much defined my life. Like My life has been defined by victory after victory, and uh, it's just been great. You know, it's been fantastic. As opposed to this other perspective which says, you know, Lord, in the good times and the bad times, whatever it is that comes my way, I'm just going to praise you regardless. Which, which perspective seems more biblical to you? <clears throat> so in conclusion, on this little section here, uh, and again, I've reiterated these points. Should we abandon cultural engagement? Of course not. Of course not. And I just threw this in. Should we not bother to vote? Of course not. This is just uh, a simple issue of stewardship. Um, And again, I know it's easy to be cynical these days and just say, why bother? I mean, I fully understand that, you know. If Ron Paul's not in, then why bother? Um, But the bottom line is the Lord has given us a vote. People died for our right to vote. And we shouldn't just engage in cultural abandonment, okay? So if we come from the perspective where we go, okay, maybe we've been in a, a deeply kingdom now world for some time and then we realize man all their focus is on this age all their focus is on law all their focus is on uh, You know the works of man, and so then you just step back and you you know completely disengage. He doesn't want us to do that. He wants us to be responsible stewards So with all that said everything that we say and do is pointing to that day Everything is pointing to that day and so the the natural end the final conclusion of that is that the ultimate expression. If everything that we're doing is pointing to that kingdom, is pointing to the one that's coming, is pointing to that day, then the ultimate expression of being witnesses, the ultimate expression of bearing witness and pointing to that day is martyrdom. And in fact, the very word martyr in the Greek, it simply means witnesses. And that's where we get the word from the Greek. How, what is it, John? Mar- martyr... How do you say it in Greek? Martur something? martyrio. I don't know why I didn't have that. Um, it's basically the ultimate expression of being a witness is being a martyr. And so how does that fit into this framework? Well, it's very simple. We're proclaiming that as this thing is getting old, is getting sick, is rotting, the hair, you know, all the things that are happening, the things that aren't supposed to happen... And uh, it's a fairly younger crowd, but those that are 40 and older, you know, you know what I'm talking about. It's it's, eight, you know, as they say, getting old is not for sissies. It's a it's a it's a it's an undignified process that we're all in. We're getting old. Our hair's falling out. You know, stuff starts sagging. That's not the way we were created to be. That's not what. That's not. And so here we have these bodies. And we're, you know, we're, everybody tells us, well, Jesus came to save your soul. Well, that's great. Someday I die and go to you know, heaven. No, He came to save this. He came to save our bodies, our souls, everything. All of creation will be redeemed. And so we look forward to that day when we're getting new bodies. And that's ultimately what our message is. is there is a day when this thing is resurrected, immortal, eternal, and we get to live lives on the earth. We get to do stuff. We get to hug people. See, it's not just like, I oh, will wonder if we might recognize those that went before us when we get there. It'll be different. It's impossible to explain with the English language. You know, it's just like this vague nebulous existence in the clouds. You're like, we're just going to sing songs for billions of years. It's going to be so sweet. You know, you're like, I, just, I can't relate to that. And it doesn't really get me excited. And then you go, no, you're going to have a body. You get to be part of the kingdom garden planning committee with Jesus. You get to rebuild cities and be part of the architectural team. You get to be part of structuring government and all of these things. You get to live life. I showed my dad recently. He's a commercial fisherman. I showed him some verses in Ezekiel 47. Dad, in the age to come, there's fishing. He's like, what? Like, fishing! You know, he's like, "Wow!" <clears throat> no, he wasn't that excited. But, but I mean, the point is, there's a reality. We can get excited about that. Why? There's substance to it. It resonates with us. We were created to have a body. And not this one. Not this one that's dying daily. We are created to have immortal bodies. That's exciting. And so, in the process of proclaiming the Gospel, someone says, I'm going to kill the body. You say, that's okay. I have full confidence in this bizarre reality. As bizarre as it sounds, He's going to raise my body up from the dead. and I'm not afraid. You can kill my body. That's fine. He's going to raise me up and then then you're going to stand before Him on the day of judgment because of what you've done if you don't repent. And so the act of martyrdom is expressing full confidence in that glorious reality of the resurrection of the body. You can't kill me. Go ahead. Have at it. You can't kill me. The Lord will raise me up. <clears throat> and beyond that, I believe as, uh, as John may have shared the past few days, it's also expressing the fact that I'm laying down my life now because the Lord is extending mercy to you. But there is a day of judgment coming. Right now we're in the age where He is ex- extending forgiveness. He's extending mercy. But the day will come when that, that, that door will be shut and the day of, uh, of judgment will be for all of creation. So, with that as the backdrop, um, we've only got a few minutes here, some thoughts on martyrdom, counting the cost of saying yes. Martyrdom throughout Christian history has largely, in my opinion, been very romanticized and celebrated, and uh, I believe some of the realities of it have been lost and distorted to a degree. Uh, Early in the church, they started developing these martyrologies, these sort of lists of martyrs. And and there's good things about that and bad things about that. But um, I think a lot of the stories do tend to, as I say, become a bit romanticized or even exaggerated. And the purpose of, of really this final discussion is really just to talk about reality, talk about the reality of this. Martyrdom involves great shame great pain, chaos and confusion. It's messy and destructive. It's not beautiful and glorious and wonderful. Christ scorned the shame. I mean, he wasn't celebrating the shame of the cross. He looked forward to the da- to the to the the uh, beauty that was beyond it. But he didn't, re- you know, rejoice in the suffering of it. Now, while men, you know, us tough men, we may, may, some of us may fondly romanticize the idea of, you know, suffering, you know, oh, I can take it, no, Um, you know, getting beat up a little bit and then dying and sort of achieving the status of saint legend, you know, going down in history as a glorious martyr. The reality that most men don't ponder that probably throughout church history is that for women... Being martyred would most, most likely involve being raped. You know, how frequently is that talked about? The gross, uh, painful, shameful, unspeakable reality when we say yes, what we're saying yes to. And then just to uh, take it up a step, I said in, in, in such a perverse world today, even the men will be raped. You see these stories where uh, in Benghazi, and they didn't just kill this guy. They, the, the men raped him. You know, and how many guys are going to run to the front of the thing and say, yes, Lord, I'm signing up. I want to be a martyr. This is, a, this is a, a disgusting, wicked, perverse world that we live in. And what Satan wants to do, Satan can't defile the, the face of God, so he, tries, he does everything he can to defile the image of God. And that's us. And he most often does it through uh, through drugs and through sexual issues, these are some of the primary ways that he defaces the image of God in humanity, but he also does it through just wicked vile acts, and he most his his favorite target of course are believers and so you know it 's going to come through every different um, many different streams but of course, you know just this week we saw the effects of Satan on two young men and how um, you know after subjecting themselves to the ideology of Islam, this young nineteen man had no problem setting down his bomb next to an eight-year-old boy and 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 cutting him down in the you know early days of his life before he really ever even had a chance to to grow up and and, and somehow thought that in doing so he was offering God a service. He actually believed he's serving God. John sixteen, verse two and three it says that um Jesus says, in fact, a day is coming when those who kill you will actually believe they're offering God a service. And they do these things because they don't, despite their claims that they know God, they don't know the Father and they don't know me. And again, it's not just Muslims. It's going to be all sorts of different groups, including uh, even humanists at times would be willing to, uh, to kill Uh, Islam just happens to be one of the uh, most perfect, custom-tailored vessels in the earth. It also happens to be one of the fastest-growing ideologies uh, in the earth, uh, one of the quickest-spreading ideologies in the earth. And it happens to be the ideology that dominates the heart of the the end-time narrative, if you will, that portion of the world where things wrap up. That's the ideology that dominates that entire region. And right there, inherent in their scriptures, says that if you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, you know, all the things that we hold sacred, then you've committed the greatest blasphemy imaginable. And why not torture somebody that's like that? You're a pagan. You've committed shirk, the unforgivable sin. You've ascribed partners to God. And so in their eyes, they believe that they are vindicating God or working for God. Stories out of Iraq before Saddam Hussein fell, I have um, read a lot um, over the years, this one book I read, it was a Jewish family that was in Iraq. And uh, during Gulf War I, no one in Iraq could admit that they got like just destroyed in three days. Like, you know, they, there had to have been um, people working in Iraq to give the Americans, you know. They couldn't believe that the U.S. government, the U.S. military would just come in and, and uh, beat them so quickly. So the first group that they turned to were the Jewish uh, Iraqis, and there's a large Jewish community in Iraq at the time, uh, and so I read the story of this man who they came to him, they accused him of being a traitor. I mean he had I mean, it was just like out of the blue. Um, there was no basis of truth in it at all. And um, they got him in a room, and there was a thin wall, and they said, "Either you confess live on TV that you gave the Americans info, and that the, the, much of the Jewish Iraqi community was involved in this." Uh, or your wife, which was just on the other side of this thin wall, we're going to rape her and kill her. I mean, this, this was the, the decision that he was given. And so he went on TV, publicly confessed, confessed to being a traitor. And then as a result, um, I think they did give him his wife back, but they sent his daughter to him in a trash bag and just, you know, basically you know, run through a, a chipper. I mean, you know, just, by the way, thanks for confessing, and and so forth. This is what Satan does. They give you an option. Renounce Christ. Confess to something that you're not guilty of. And if you do that, then we'll spare you. We'll do this. And then you do that, and once you've just lost the most precious possession that you have, they do it anyway. I mean, you know, I don't know what percentage, but if you look at statistics with kidnappings, and you you give us a ransom, we'll give you your kid back. Very rarely do those that give in to their tormentors. Why? Because they are possessed by Satan. I mean, literally, this is Satan's playground, the last days. And so the bottom line is, you know, there's those that would justify it in their mind. They'd say, no, it's okay. And then this is what they say. You say, no, I'm not going to renounce Christ. And then they say, look what you've done. Look what you could have saved your family. How dare you? Look what you did to your family. And they play these, you know, these games, and I mean, I know this is fairly uh, morbid. I just wanted to talk about it for a few minutes. I want to talk about the reality of martyrdom. And so we have all of, these, you know, these sort of um, stories that we tell. We say, "Yeah, you know this evangelistic campaign, and this guy comes and said, "I want to be a Christian." And we said, "No, you need to think about it for a few days. You know, Do you know what you're really saying yes to?" I and mean, then we kind of brag about how we told him that you got to quit smoking, you know, crack, and you know you got to do all this, you got to give up drinking and sleeping around, and and he realized that it's a big thing to say yes, and he came back and he was ready and he's really saved. And what I'm saying is, uh, I'll just read the verse, Luke 14:26 through 27. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, his own mother, his wife, his children, his brothers, his whole family. Now, it's, he doesn't want us to hate our family. What he's saying is, if you're not willing to put me above your family to the point, to the, you know, using hyperbole, to the point where it's as if you hate them compared to how much you're willing to uh, sacrifice for me, even your own life, you cannot be my disciple. You can't be a follower of Christ. You can't be a Christian unless you're willing to say yes to some of the things that I'm talking about. Unless you're willing to say, Lord, if You tell me to do it, if You tell me to go to the mission field, if You tell me to say this, I'm risking the chance that my children could be killed. How many people are just willing to run forward and say yes, amen? And what I'm saying is that if we're not willing to do that, we may be deluded into believing that we're followers of Christ, and we're not it's easy for a lot of us to believe that you know, maybe in the circles that we run in, we go, well, let's say somebody was, went to a church and someone got up and they said, I just want to tell you that Jesus died on the cross for your sins so that you can have your cake and eat it too. And if you want to say yes to that, come forward. You can live your best life now. And you'll have your sins forgiven and you can be guaranteed to be wealthy, healthy, and all these. And they come forward and they say yes. There's a lot of us in the room that would say yes. I think a large percentage of the people in those churches are deceived and might not be in the faith. And yet, if Luke 14 is the criterion of who is truly a disciple, then I'm terrified. And yet, this is the standard that he says, if you're not willing to lay it all down in all of its gruesome, disgusting wickedness, Believing fully that on that day you will be beautified, restored, and healed, and rewarded uh, beyond comparison, and fully place your faith in that, then you can't even be my disciple. That's a serious call, and and believe me, I don't claim you know I'm <clears throat> I, I'm I'm not I'm not there, you know. I know that there's a lot of my life that I. You know I, I go, God, I can't do that. I can't sit, subject my daughters to this and just you know willingly rejoice in it. And I don't think he wants us to be excited about it, but he wants us to say yes now I just um I just uh, met with a fellow uh, from Turkey and uh, he's been in uh, Turkey with his family for about twelve years, and uh, he was close friends with uh, the two Turks and the one German. That were martyred about seven years ago. It was 2007, six years ago, several years back. And uh, he was good friends with them. And so what happened was this: uh, this, this ministry team was um, meeting with a young Muslim man who claimed to be a seeker, and uh, and he asked if he could have a, a meeting with them in their in their offices. And he brought a few of his friends. And again, they were pretending to be interested. And they started demanding of the Turks, in particular, that they recant uh, the fact that they were now believers, uh, Christ followers, and, and you were born a Muslim. And uh, they refused to recant. They, uh, they bound them, uh, began torturing them. And if you read the details of what happened, it was gruesome. I mean, they were stabbed and cut and slit, and, and, um, and, and they were tortured. And they refused to recant. And uh, eventually, someone came. They were knocking on the door. uh, They they heard some noises. The police came. Uh, When it was all said and done, all three the two Turks and the one German all died. And uh, so my friend uh, was the first one there with the pastor at the scene to be there with the widows um, after it happened. And you know, he said as we were going, for all we knew, we were next. You know, we didn't. You know, it was it was terrifying. And we were there to minister to the, to the wives and the children. And he, he said there was nothing romantic about it. It was terrible. It was a nightmare. And then they wouldn't uh, release the bodies. And so they had to actually go to the morgue and actually get the body themselves and bring it and bury it. And, and he said, and then it was there we were standing with the widows. And the widows came out on national television. And they said, you know, we just want to tell uh, everyone that... Um, that we have been forgiven in Christ, and we forgive those that have done this. And, um, and they said there was a, just an incredible release of, of a witness across Turkey as a result of, of that, the grace that rested on the widows. And, um, and then uh, my friend there, he found out that he and his family were on the hit list, that they were actually you know, next in line or somewhere next in line to, be, uh, to also be killed. And, uh, and one of his friends said to him, he said, how can, you, how can you stay in Turkey knowing, with your little children, knowing that at any day that you could be killed? And uh, the answer that he gave just, it was just fantastic. He said, I just looked at them and I said, we're already dead. Isn't that what the scriptures say? We've been crucified with Christ. And they said, that's why we're here. That's why we're here. Galatians 2 verse 20 I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life which I now live, I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, gave himself up for me. <coughs> we need to recognize that when we got baptized, we claimed that we died. So why are we complaining that we have to give up things? I thought we already died. And, uh, but yet the fact, the reality is that we do, and I do. there's a few more things that I've laid out here. Revelation 12, verse 11. In the last days, the testimony of those that stand firm. It says they overcame uh, Satan and and his uh, followers because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives even unto death. So they were faithful uh, in that that, uh, mandate and that call Of Luke 14, they didn't love their lives unto death. And so the point that I make once again here in M is that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. And we can say, yes, thank you for dying for me on the cross. But if we don't appropriate that reality, in other words, if we're not really willing to say yes to all that that entails, then it doesn't mean that we've been washed In other words, saying yes is more than just saying thank you for my best life now. Thank you for all the goodness that you've given me. It has to be, Lord, I'm dying. I'm crucifying myself with you from this day forward. I no longer live. You live through me. Now give me the grace to walk that out. Amen? I'll just pray. Father, uh, thank you for the ability just to touch on the subject of martyrdom. It's absolutely essential. Uh, that we talk about it, that we think about it, that we meditate on it, the realities of it, particularly those of us, that um, the the younger ones that uh, very well may uh, go to the mission field or who will be involved um, more actively and engaged in ministry in the days to come as the world only continues to become more antagonistic and hateful toward those that maintain uh, the word. Uh, of their testimony and speak the truth. We ask that your grace would rest on us. We ask that you would give us the ability to say yes. We ask that you would give us the ability to die daily, to take up our cross daily, and to actually simply be Christians, to be your followers, to be your disciples, that we would actually understand what it means uh, to be uh, your disciples, particularly in these last days. We say we can't do it without you. We're selfish um, where we're, we're, everything in us wants to embrace a false anti-gospel, even in subtle ways. We ask that you would give us the ability to face truth and reality and to walk this thing out faithful, that we would stand before you on that day um, without any regrets. We thank you for these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.